Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Listen, will you, for the word of God as it's proclaimed through these words of the evangelist John. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to, be, to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light and do not come to the light, so that their deeds may not be exposed. But those who do what is true come to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. Holy Wisdom, Holy Word. I don't know if you all have seen the ads um, on TV um, that are CNN commercials. I've just sort of fallen in love with them. I just find them so compelling. The original one, I recall, started with an image, a picture of an apple on the screen. And the voiceover says, this is an apple. Some people might tell you this is a banana. They might scream, banana, banana, banana over and over and over again. They might put banana in all caps. You might even start to believe that this is a banana, but it's not. This is an apple. And the tagline at the end says, facts first. There have been several iterations of this commercial. There's one that starts with the image of a banana peel. And the voice server says, some people might try to tell you that this is an apple. It might even start as a joke. But when they say it over and over and over again, and people start to believe it, it's only a matter of time until someone gets hurt. The most recent one has a series of images that rewrite what we thought we knew about the world. It takes the things we thought we could count on and turns them upside down. So here's how the images go. An image of children bobbing for bananas. (laughs) A child putting a banana on her teacher's desk. A t-shirt from New York City that says, The Big Banana. Newton's law of gravity discovered because a banana fell from a tree. It ends with an image of the Garden of Eden where Eve gives Adam a banana. The tagline on it says, lies can become truth if we let them. So here's my point. 
Truth is more fragile these days than I would have ever imagined. I mean, if truth can be manipulated and manufactured to suit our own agenda, then in what can we believe? Where can we place our trust? Obviously, the church has been complicit in this endeavor of misrepresenting facts or emphasizing particular theological themes in order to advance an agenda or conquer a people or build an empire or hold on to power, right? On a lighter note... Sometimes we just imagine details that aren't there simply because it makes for a better story. Ironically, it's true that Eve did not give Adam a banana, but she didn't give him an apple either. At least the Bible doesn't mention an apple in Genesis 3, third chapter of Genesis. Look it up. Likewise, there's no mention of a whale in Jonah. It was just a fish that we imagined into a whale. And here's probably the most shocking thing that I came to know about the Bible. There is no mean innkeeper that turned away a pregnant Mary in the Gospel of Luke. Are y'all with me? Is this new? Is this news? It's really silent out there. Okay, you can look up that one too. The innkeeper is a figment of our imagination. It makes for a better story. That's harmless, right? There's no question, though, that the Bible has been misrepresented, trivialized, and weaponized. But there are ways that we can reclaim the foundational narrative of our faith even for our 21st century years. And with all the apples being turned into bananas these days, it's more important than ever to equip ourselves with biblical theology that is reflective, thoughtful. So here's my three rules for reading the Bible, rules that I think are consistent with my seminary training. Rule number one. Facts first. Don't assume that you know what the words in a text mean because they mean, they may mean something different in their original language or in the context in which they were written several thousand years ago. Facts first. Rule number two. Gut check. Do a gut check. Does it make sense? Is it consistent with what you know to be true about God? If my gut is screaming when I read a text, I return to my one bedrock principle. God is love. When a text challenges that, my gut knows it. And I know to dig a little deeper. And so that leads me to my third rule. Follow the questions. Questions are great. They lead us to understanding Questions keep us humble. Questions keep us growing. Questions take us deeper into the mystery that is God. So today I want to focus on perhaps the most well-known piece of scripture in the Bible, John 3.16, with a little bit of trepidation. At first glance, this verse gives us a simple black and white 
choice to be made based on belief. Option one, believe in Jesus, you get eternal life. Option two, don't believe in Jesus, you perish. John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life. It's simple, fits on a poster. You can wave it in front of the cameras during football games. It's soundbite theology, soundbite theology. When I hear this text, and, and, you know, I confess that I did not grow up memorizing Bible verses because I, I came to my faith as an adult. And so when I hear this text, it's like someone is saying, banana, 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 but I see an apple. In my gut, I sense inconsistencies that need to get resolved inconsistencies that need some resolution that call me to go deeper into the text. I have all kinds of questions about this text, don't you? While everyone may know the words of John 3.16 are clear, um, I don't know if everybody knows what the words mean. Have they become so overused, so misused, that we might believe this text is a banana instead of an apple. You might say, come on, everybody knows what that text means. It means that Jesus was sent by God to be a sacrifice for my sins. And if I say I believe in Jesus, then I'll go to heaven when I die. That's what that text says. Read that way. John 3.16 is bound up in what Marcus Borg calls heaven and hell theology. If you believe it, if you believe that Jesus was a sacrifice sent by God to pay off our human sinfulness, then you go to heaven. And if you don't, well, then you know what happens. A lot of sincere Christians think John 3.16 means just that. And you may hear them say it over and over and over again, but that does not make it a fact. And frankly, this particular banana peel can hurt people. John 3.16 confronts us with the premise of substitutionary atonement. Here's how it works. The starting point for substitutionary atonement is that humans are full of sin, right down to the very core. 100% filled with sinfulness. In fact, humans are born sinful. That's another whole sermon on original sin. (laughs) But the fact of the matter is, that makes God mad. God's angry about the sinfulness of humanity. So God demands a payoff in order to calm and appease God's anger. So what can possibly undo the sin of all humans in the whole world? According to the Bible, it's God's only son. Jesus becomes the sacrificial object. And I say object very clearly. All of us ought to be punished, but Jesus is sent by God in order to be sacrificed as a substitute for us and in order to appease the anger of God. 
So the text has been understood this way. Now, I don't know about you, but my gut response to that is not positive. And it doesn't take long. Literally, it takes reading the first chapter of the Bible to come up with an alternative starting point, right? Genesis 1.27 says that we are all made in the image of God, which runs counter to the idea that we are all essentially bad and originally sinful. Again, another sermon. So gut check number two is this. Why is God so angry that God needs to be appeased? That one takes me back to my bedrock principle. God is love. Now, grant you, this is just a sketch, and I realize that I'm condensing a whole lot of theology, carefully crafted theology, but you can see that there does seem to be an inconsistency between God is love and God is so angry that God demands payment to be appeased. And that payment is the sacrifice of a human. I think the time is right for us to consider another understanding of this text because John 3.16 has been and is regularly used to drive home the message that if you don't believe in substitutionary atonement, then you will not be going to heaven and well-meaning people will feel compelled to save you. That's the attitude that's driving more people away from church than encouraging them to be part of what they perceive the church to be, which is narrow-minded and exclusive. When the church claims that there's only one way to have a right relationship with God and is inflexible with regard to other interpretations, then many are going to choose to be spiritual but not religious They're going to remain outside the church even while they practice their own spiritual journey in relationship with a God who loves them. So let's do some fact-checking on John 3.16. A surface reading will lead us to the conclusion that it's, it's all about our belief in Jesus. Everyone who believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life. But there are three words in the text that make all the difference in the world. The Greek word translated as belief, pistuon. A better English translation is actually to place confidence in. And the word, the Greek word for only, God's only son, can also be translated as unique. God's unique son. So the translation then would go like this, for God so loved the world that he gave his unique son so that everyone who places their confidence in him. And then finally, the Greek word ionion, it's accurately translated as eternal life, but if it is to be understood in the way that it was intended, we have to know that eternal life is not just life After we die, it's not the same concept as life everlasting. It is 
a qualitative term. It describes life that is lived in relationship with God right here, right now, and then on into the future. Eternal life is life that's lived in right relationship with God, and it starts today, November 11th, 2018. We can have eternal life. It's a quality of life. So all of this is to say that a translation that would be accurate to the meaning of John 3.16 would go something like this. For God so loved the world that he gave as a gift his unique son so that those who have confidence in him will not perish but will live out a right relationship with God now and beyond. You see the difference? Rather than belief in, it's a relationship with. It's not just that we believe in Jesus, but we place our confidence in the whole project of God that's revealed through the unique event of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. It's that we understand that the gift to be received is not just that Jesus died, but that Jesus lived in such a way that God's, who is love, was fully revealed. It was love that Jesus died for. It was love that he refused to relinquish. And it was love that was resurrected and lives within us. We place our confidence in the message Christ spoke and speaks, and we place our confidence in the life he lived and continues to live through us, and we place our trust in the fully human Jesus who was so intimately connected with God that when people experience Jesus, They experienced something fully divine. They experienced God. Our faith cannot be boiled down to a soundbite. It's just so much more than that. When we place our confidence in Christ, then we begin to live according to all that he taught. More accurately, we allow Christ to live through us. And we experience a quality of life that we call eternal life. We get these beautiful, amazing glimpses of eternal life right today because God so loves the world. And those glimpses of eternal life remind us of that truth. God so loves the world. This week I had a beautiful glimpse of eternal life when I met a young girl by the name of Juliet. Juliet is Linda Cobb's foster child. In fact, she is the 34th foster child of Linda Cobb. Linda has sole custody of Juliet, and um, she brought Juliet to North Haven when she was but a child, a couple of years old. She was baptized here. She's about 11 years old now, and she has profound challenges from a disease that will likely take her life in the next 10 to 20 years. She's unable to walk, unable to talk, unable to eat, 
control her body, move her head. She is confined to a wheelchair. And when Linda was no longer able to take care of her, she placed her in a home that would take care of her well, located a couple of hours from Dallas, where Linda's able to see her and visit with her every couple of weeks. Well, last week, Juliet came to a, to a dentist here in Dallas. A transport brought her to Dallas, and so I was able to meet her before she went into the dentist. And it took her a while to uh, awaken. It had been a long journey to get here, and at first she didn't seem to know where she was, but then her mother gently held her head up and her eyes focused and found her mother's face. And Juliet's face broke into a smile that conveyed love for her mother that was truly divine. It was a revelation of God. It was a glimpse of eternal life. Friends, our faith is so much more than a sound bite and a set of beliefs. Our faith is the confidence that we place in the God of love and the relationship that gives us eyes to see what is truly eternal. Amen.